0: Hello! Welcome to Unbiased with me, Dashi Harindra. I help organisations rethink how they use data and new technologies in a compliant, unbiased and inclusive way. I'm on a mission to rehumanise technology so that we can max out on all the potential benefits it brings whilst keeping people very much at the centre of its oversight and success. Now, this podcast is very much centred on the human side of the equity and inclusion equation. Through guests sharing their stories of how bias has affected and continues to affect their day-to-day lives, we can get a glimpse into the beautifully complex fabric interwoven into our communities. And we can learn about some of their work in trying to address or combat the ill effects of some of those biases. Caroline is my first repeat guest on Unbiased today, having joined me last year in episode seven to talk about her work as CEO of Organise Curate Design. But to recap a bit on Caroline's bio, over almost two decades, Caroline Bruni has mastered the art and science of supporting high-performing leaders via strategic life management, Through her business, she has earned a formidable reputation supporting industry leaders to streamline and organize their lives to maximize their time and profitability while creating intentional lives. Caroline is also a professional speaker, successful artist, model, and mother, plus the host of a suite of podcasts. Her work has been featured in Channel Seven Sunrise, Mamma Mia, Women's Health, Channel 9 News, and Body and Soul. Now, Caroline adds author to her CV through an act of unshakable courage sharing her own true story and becoming someone new. In writing her debut book, More Than One Thing Can Be True, a story of survival, Caroline not only bravely changed her world, but ignited a mission to change the world for children today and for future generations. Her story is a compelling account of healing despite the odds. It speaks to the reality of trauma and also the power we have to transform and heal. It's a story of one courageous woman who despite carrying decades of shame, chose to own her voice. In doing so, she is paving the way for survivors to own their voices and live a life of courageous intention. Now, me personally, I love consuming memoirs and autobiographical content in audio format, especially when they're narrated by the author. So I listened to Caroline's book on Audible, and it was truly moving to listen to, told in her own voice. There will likely be many, many people who have interacted with Caroline, as I had, and had absolutely no idea of the trauma they had endured. But the way Caroline shared her story, balancing the vulnerable with a strength and assurance that the Caroline we've known before, the Caroline who is CEO of Organised Curate Design, who is my guest on this very podcast, and is a perennial problem solver, still comes through in the way the book is structured and offers practical insight, support and actionable steps for both victims and families, and also the wider community around them. Caroline, I'm delighted to welcome you back to the podcast today. It's such a pleasure to be able to chat again.
1: I am so honoured to be the first repeat guest. Thank you for having me again.
0: My pleasure. So to start, Caroline, can you share in your own words what your new book is about and what your biggest hopes are for what readers can take away from it?
1: Sure. So as you said, I am well known for many other things uh, and had spent a very long time essentially trying to distract people from this reality from this truth. Um, Now the truth that I share in my memoir is around survival. It's around surviving childhood sexual abuse. Um, It explores a lot of complexities around um, what happens when abuse happens in family. So in my case, um, the abuse has occurred within my immediate family and the family that I grew up in. And then it unpacks what can happen if those – um, those truths are hidden and hidden from the rest of the world, but sometimes from others even in our own families. So that is just a very small part of the story. Um, I'm a thinker and a problem solver, so there's definitely elements of the memoir that are insights and research and, and things that I've looked into along my healing journey that I wanted to ensure that I shared so Others, be it survivors, victims, whatever they identify as, and and supporters around them, um, can gain from that. So, I have had a few. Pe- I had had a few people say, "Oh, memoir. You're not old enough to write a memoir." <laughs> and I went, "Yep. If you only knew. If you only knew everything I had survived up until this point in my life, and maybe I'll write another one later on."
0: Yeah, I think we've we sort of got to claim back or, or reframe that term memoir these days mm-hmm. because people just have such rich lives and stories mm-hmm. and there'll be a point in time where a particular one is is ripe to come out and be shared in its way and it's it's no longer the realm of the 80 plus somethings that have lived <laughs> lived several years um, when actually a lot can happen in a few mm-hmm. years. I have to say I I really loved the title that idea that more than one thing can be true, Mm. it's actually a penny that took a long time to drop for me personally, uh, particularly when navigating familial relationships. And perhaps that part of me that often feels a need to rationalise everything into a set of facts and circumstances with a particular outcome that must be true for anyone else that has been living through the same um, scenario. But of course, that doesn't take into account the human condition, that perceptions are formed based on so many factors, both personal and environmental, so that they can be felt so differently even by two people that might be um, living through the same set of circumstances. For me, I have aging to thank and I have the likes of Brene Brown to thank for breaking down difficult emotions in, in particular shame mm. and this is something that I think you do really well through the book and the way that you share your story. So I'm interested to know Caroline how you came to put pen to paper after keeping your story to yourself for so long mm. Was it purely personal or were there things that you were seeing or experiencing in the environment around you that made it feel like the time was right for you?
1: Well, it was definitely a bit of both. Uh, I don't think you can venture down a path like writing a memoir, be it about the best time of your life or some of the most tragic and heartbreaking traumatic parts of your life without it being about you. Uh, so there was definitely a, a healing that was happening, and a, a journey of healing and discovering that was happening whilst I was writing. There were definitely moments throughout the writing process where I wrote about things that I don't even—I I probably hadn't even thought about or shared for un, since the moment in time. Um, be it good or bad things, uh, funny memories from teenage years, and 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 then you know traumatic moments in time. So, there was definitely that element that I wanted to take the the time to process and and writing is my form of meditation. So, there was definitely a point where I was writing just to write and I kept saying to my writing coach that I didn't even know if I was going to publish and she kept laughing and saying, okay, no problems knowing that the, the type of person I am, it was unlikely that this wouldn't see, you know, this kind of format or some kind of publishing of some way or self-publishing in some way. Um, but the environment is also important. So we have seen over, you know, recent years around Me Too, the Me Too movement. Now, obviously, for those that have explored the Me Too move, movement further, they'll know that it has existed way before the hashtag Um but the hashtag has brought it to light and we've seen the fallout of that in our society or the reclaiming of voices and stories and and shame and accountability being put back in the hands of the people that need to hold them, um, be it being the perpetrators. So there was definitely a lot happening around me and had been happening over years where I had seen just what was happening in the world and, and I thought, well, wait, I have a very significant story to add to this chorus of stories and, and if I share this, how much impact can that have on the people around me and and what is surprising and, and always seems to be surprising, it's, it's the strangers that I've never met before. So, um, yeah, so it was definitely a bit of both what was really interesting as well is some of the things that I was writing about were happening in real time. So there were mentions of maybe uh, when I mentioned family counseling or sharing things with close family members. um, And even there's a chapter around uh, the concept of a tsunami. A lot of that was happening kind of or had happened maybe only two or three months before I put pen to paper. So that in itself is is quite significant, and a lot of people probably haven't even realised that when they look at the timeline because the book doesn't read from zero to where we are today. Um, it jumps around a bit in in regards to timeline. Uh, so some people may have even just not even picked up on the fact that some of the things I wrote about were happening in 2021 as I was writing.
0: So thankful for for the fact that you have shared that and seeing even when I look at look through reviews and things like that it's clear that it's resonated with the people and and I hope that's that goes some way to making all of that that work and reliving some of those things pay off Caroline. Mm -hmm. I want to unpack trauma uh, a little bit more because another concept that more than one thing can be true educated me on was this idea of there being a Big T trauma,
1: yes. I think your
0: experiences <laughs> yes. as a child firmly sit there, and little t mm. trauma. Uh, in, in my work in the diversity, equity and inclusion space, the term trauma is used a lot to help mm. people unpack certain experiences and behaviours. And I've often struggled with how loaded that term can feel. And I've often felt this tussle between what even constitutes trauma and Mm -hmm. whether it's something to be pitted against another's trauma Mm -hmm. or I can't possibly speak on this because I've also Mm -hmm. balanced that out with all this kind of this privilege as well. and, And how does that all sit together? And a previous guest on this podcast, who's a child psychologist, Rana Tayara, she also first explained to me that trauma doesn't discriminate mm-hmm. and, and it can affect an individual in similar ways, whether they've grown up in a war zone
1: mm-hmm.
0: or in Western middle-class suburbia. Mm-hmm. Um, Caroline, tell us a bit more about this distinction and how it comes
1: to Yeah. Out. So I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me as you talk about that experience is that i think even if we're going to frame things as big t or little t trauma it is about the impact on the person so what to me could be little t trauma could be big t trauma to the person sitting next to me it's about the impact on the individual and i think in our lived experience as human beings, we have to remember that we all experience things differently. And there is not a one size fits all for anything. Uh and I think that's where we get it really, really wrong. Uh, we often try to put all of us, and as I said, like we we could we could both be driving in the same car, both sitting in the back seat as passengers, be in a car accident sustain the same physical injuries um and have seen exactly the same thing in exactly the same time but we know that that can't be exactly the same you know you're sitting on the left i'm sitting on the right you were looking out the window i was looking at my phone those intricate little details and also our lived experience to that point so you know had you been in a car accident before had i do i have any other health concerns so on and so forth um that as you can just see, just in that example, the ripple effect of the impact of the trauma, and I'm talking about physical trauma in that way, um, or a traumatic event, um, we can already see how it's different for each individual. So, I think that's the start of that um, understanding is that even though we do have this terminology around big T and little T trauma, which I don't think a lot of people have actually heard before, I I definitely, um, I hadn't heard of that, until and when I did I was like major light bulb moment for me but the the way that I explain it in the book is around um how that you know things impact us as individuals and me scolding my children for bouncing a ball in the house could be classed as little tea trauma in the sense that they just kind of go oh mum's not much fun and all she does is yell about balls in the house but it also depends on how I communicate with them so if I was the kind of parent that constantly yelled and berated them and put them down and belittled them and and diminished their self-worth. And and just at that point in time where I chose to berate them about bouncing a ball in the house, that could tip over to the big T trauma because it could really change their sense of self, their sense of confidence and identity and, and whatever else. So though there is some real, like there's some obvious ones, like we talk about and I, I use the example of myself, like childhood sexual abuse at, at such a young age, yes, definitely sits in the space for me as big T trauma. Um, and I think also when you put things on a scale, so I've had things, other things happen to me in my life, but unfortunately, when you have a big T trauma incident on that scale, it throws the scale a bit. So something that may not be, uh, may, may upset someone quite considerably to me, isn't even a blip on the radar because I've experienced something to a different extreme. So that's kind of how the concept works. Um, But I think it would be dangerous for us to try to apply it as a scale and as a one-size-fits-all because, as I said, I think we all experience things differently in our lived experience.
0: I think it was certainly something that really hit me and as you've, you've talked about it, just now is really looking at it from the perspective of the mm. impact mm. it has on someone, which in some ways, when you play that back, you think, well, then should we, you know, is there a place for that, for that distinction? And does that, you know, sometimes that can sort, I suppose, sort of mar things, but it's a, it's such a call to action for deep mm. empathy, because we're Everything we do and how we interact, and in particularly with children, is so relational. It's really hard sometimes to extract yourself from the equation um, and just sit in the space of a victim in this in this scenario. But in particular, I think with uh, how you interact and listen to others, but in particular, children, there's there's a there's a lot in that. And, and really, you know, and a thirty minute conversation is never going to do <laughs> the complexity and many dimensions of this topic justice but I did want to ask for your view on how important you think it is for people to just lean into that real complexity of situations more rather than oversimplify just in order to get our heads around something quickly because these things are just they're just really big and really difficult and and sometimes we need our brains just need to rationalize it in some way but that's it. From, from what I'm hearing from you today, that can be problematic. So what's your view on that and how do you think we can go about trying to lean in a little bit more if that's the case?
1: I think the first part of the leaning in is, is making sure that the space is really safe. So ensuring that if, if someone is sharing with you as a survivor or someone that's vulnerable or whatever the case may be, because we're talking about trauma and trauma can form in so many different ways. If someone is sharing with you and and they are being vulnerable, it's a case of ensuring that their physical, psychological, emotional safety is is first, you know, the first thing on your mind. So um, being really mindful if, if you're approaching that and you're trying to lean into a conversation that the person has to feel safe to continue that conversation. Uh, from that point it's a case of being very patient and almost making sure that you are paying attention to following their lead. Uh, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about walking beside um, and as opposed to charging forward or expecting people to carry you, you're there alongside them at their pace um, as their comrade. And I think in this c- concept of leaning into discussions and leaning into the complexities of more than one thing being true and the people in our lives. um, It's a similar situation. So making sure that we're taking their lead, making sure that we're asking questions, but we're being respectful uh, and also making sure that we don't jump ahead. So when it comes to be it for the person, but definitely even for ourselves. So I have definitely found that, um, and definitely since I released my memoir, people will just reach out and say, oh, I read your memoir and I want to share this with you. Actually, they don't even tell me that they're going to share something with me. I often will open a message and just have a share um, there. And and if I'm not in the right place to respond, to read, to do whatever I, I choose to do with that, I will often just acknowledge and say, I'm not in the right space right now to respond to you, um, but please know that I have seen your message and I will come back to you um, when I'm in a space where I can provide you with the safety around the words that you've just you know, shared with me or the story you've shared with me or so I can lean into that fully or how I need to with boundaries around my own self-care, with boundaries around my own triggers and, and so on and so forth. And we would be naive to think that even as, you know, there are people out there in the world that be it genuinely haven't experienced trauma or don't believe that they have, and even they need safety and boundaries around the psychological and emotional safety. So um, being really honest with people and just saying, I just need a moment um, and I will come back to you holding true to that um please don't leave people hanging if they've shared really vulnerable things with you acknowledge that that has taken um you know a lot of strength on their part but yeah leaning in and being incredibly honest and truthful and patient with yourself and the other person and making sure that space is safe because that emotional and psychological safety is so important for all of us
0: just to follow on a little bit more from that on a really practical note how would you like to see children affected in similar ways to the way that you were back then and um, be treated by family and authorities today have you seen progress in this space and yeah where do you see that actual practical help at a more macro level
1: yeah so there's definitely organizations that are doing some amazing work um brave hearts is my main charity of choice um who have worked in the space for years and 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 definitely have uh, many resources for parents um and caregivers and and i think that's always a great place to start so organizations like brave hearts are, are doing the work and they're also working with what's best at this point in time um, the world changes so rapidly, and yes, children will always be children. But how they, the world they're growing up in, and, and what they're exposed to, may be different. So, making sure that if you're not sure, that you seek support from organisations that are experts in the space. Um, I think, unfortunately, the reality is we we can put a lot of pressure on children to do the thing. Um, they're children. They often don't have the words, but if we slow down and we tune into their body language, those instincts that we can see, I think even to my children when they were younger and those moments where, you know, they squirm and they don't want to say hello to someone or they you can tell they're uncomfortable So before we override that as adults and say, oh, you better go shake that person's hand, or go say hello or stop fidgeting or whatever we say um, because we're trying to rein them in as as the little people that they are, um, take a moment, just slow down and just pay attention to what's going on. And it may be nothing, it may be something, um, but the moment we tell children not to really feel into their bodies and the instincts that – the physicalities of what comes out of their instincts the moment we chip away at them and you know take their voices away from them because they don't have the capacity to do that so I think as parents and caregivers we we can we know our children so well so we can often see when something isn't quite right and and but making space for that so that's that's psychological and emotional and physical safety so where the children work at their best when they're playing so giving them the space to play and communicate and and being really patient with them because the reality is if something has happened they're going to need to feel safe again before they speak or share or draw or whatever it is that they're going to do to communicate with you um when it comes to the authorities i have mixed feelings on the authorities. Um, Though I think that there are elements of our criminal justice system that are fantastic and I, I respect why the system was created the way that it was, um, I'm not the biggest fan of the way that we manage um, perpetrators and harm doers in Western society. Uh, I I don't think that that's the way that I, – I just don't think it's working. I think that um, – We're just creating more people that hurt people so you know we push them out to the sides of our society and we lock them up and we isolate them we know what isolation does to people then we put them around more people that have been harm doers and hope that in x amount of time which often as a victim or survivor doesn't seem like long enough um they're going to come back and they're going to be okay and they're never going to do the bad thing again but I don't know if you've put a child in timeout as an example, and they might come out and do exactly the same thing right in front of your eyes. So it's it's the same example. It's um, I think the system is outdated. I think there's definitely opportunities for change, but I, I don't know if i I'm, I'm I'm I will comment on it, but I I don't have the answers unfortunately. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, again, I don't, I'm not sure in 30 minutes we can solve the, the criminal justice system either and I come from that that background and I, and I totally see your point in particular in this area where it's so more often than not a perpetrator is someone known often a family member, I think when you're, this is not, this is not, you know, a, a stranger being assaulted mm-hmm. down a back alleyway in a street where it's mm-hmm. a cut that that so I'm not, I'm not sure uh, how a sophisticated a legal uh, and kind of framework is to accommodate for that, that right now. But I, there has to be a place for
1: mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I agree. And right now it, we don't have anything else. so. We work with we as well.
0: So yeah, it does seem like that in itself poses a big barrier to positive change in in that area. There's no easy way to change tack in this topic, but I'm going to change tack up slightly <laughs> and asking for a friend. How did you find the writing process? I know you mentioned that, that you, you spoke about writing just being mm. your form of meditation and being quite mm. quite cathartic, and maybe it helped to start and, and to, to frame your brain in that, oh, I'm not going to publish it, I'm not going to publish it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how have you found that that writing to publish process and mm. and now that you have that one book under your belt is it you know we, I, I mentioned it as your debut book and that that in and of itself <laughs> yes. suggests that there could be more to come uh, what are your views on that
1: oh, oh it's funny i if if we had had this conversation in early june i was probably still rocking in a corner going oh my goodness." <laughs> No, I, I lie. I wasn't doing. I wasn't rocking in a corner. I was probably nervous about the fact that my life story was about to be very, very public. But um, the writing process in itself, I am incredibly fortunate to have worked with Holly from Blue Fifty One Communications. Um, I spoke to a few writing coaches prior to. Actually, for a few years, I had kind of thought about writing a book, um, but I ended up working with Holly, and she was an incredible support and resource and and the, the way that she guided me through the process of writing, especially considering I'd never written a book before, um, was, was amazing and, and exactly what I personally needed. And I can say that I literally was at Holly's house yesterday and we are in the works of talking about book number two so you heard it here first
0: wow an exclusive a repeat guest and an exclusive on unbiased everybody um can we get any more info on the what this second book yeah so
1: it's completely different I can't write another memoir just yet I haven't even really lived much since the last one so uh so this is probably in some ways the book that people thought that I was going to write so when I first said to people I was writing a book and they're like oh is it about time management and how to get organized and all, I was like nope sorry my bad it's not about that at all um Now, this book won't necessarily be about time management and how to get organised. There will be elements of that in it, but it will be about mental load. So um, I mentioned to you before, before we started recording, that I'm about to launch a new podcast soon, um, which will be called The Mental Load Project, and that will form some of, you know, it will be me in in brainstorm mode and also providing our community, our organised, creative, Design community and 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 just the larger community that knows me and my work, with some insights on mental load and how it impacts us in the day to day. It's probably the overarching topic that sits above my core business, organize, curate, design. So we do the nitty gritty doing in the business, but I often speak to my clients about what is weighing them down from a mental load perspective. And um I want to take that topic and I want to broaden it. So I always start with where am I and what am I doing? And I'm a mom of two and I'm a business owner and and uh, the list of things I do is a bit ridiculous. I do lots of things so I juggle a lot. Um and that's where my mental load comes in and how I manage that and what I do. But uh, when I think about other parents, what are their format what is the format of their life and, and then I then broaden that out to what's happening for single parents? What's happening for people with a disability? What's happening for people on the spectrum? What's happening for people that are um, you know transgender or non-binary? What's happening for our immigrants? Um, what's happening for the First Nations people? in our country they all carry different mental load they all have a shopping list they all have laundry they all have other things but the reality is certain um like some certain um immigrant groups have a different dynamic with the elderly in their community versus how we have the the connection we have with the elderly in Western countries so or Western communities. So the mental load is different. And even if we put it like for like, almost going back to what I was saying about trauma, we're not living at exactly the same. Um, I heard this analogy a few times over during the peak of the pandemic of we're not all in the same boat, we're all in the same storm, but some of us are on, you know, a life raft and some of us are in a, a gorgeous yacht that's got a hold a crew of people and that to me ties really well into the experience of mental load and how we how we carry it and so yeah there's a lot I'm like you can tell that as I'm even rambling because I don't feel like I'm making sense right now because I'm deep in brainstorm like pe- actually not even deep in it I'm at the very start of the brainstorm process um, I am I'm very excited about this one because, once again, I will do what I do, which is find all the experts, find all the knowledge, package it up, try to find some answers and and try to give it to the audience and the reader with some really tangible things that they can put in place to reduce their mental load to support people in their community of all shapes and sizes and um, to hopefully make the world a a little bit of a better place
0: that's a phenomenal teaser um <laughs> caroline this is like a little bit more related to what you do because when we last spoke we spoke about that i think and mm-hmm. that yes you're doing that nitty-gritty but what is the core you know what are you actually alleviating for your clients it's mm-hmm. it's that that way to the mental load and I, and I mentioned to you before we started recording that since we spoke i have been much more open to outsourcing almost immediately as that that trigger goes in me going why yeah. is this why it's is this being a blocker What
1: Caroline voice in your head goes nope
0: <laughs> yeah so what I see as this real theme from reading your first book and, and hearing about the way you're tackling this idea of mental load is that it will potentially relate to to a reader for whatever circumstance they're in mm. but I think really giving opening everyone's eyes to look mm to the left and right of us and around us and understanding the realities for other people a bit, or just, you know, just understanding that the realities will be different for others and keeping that. I think those, I think really understanding mental load in the community sense is a really, is really important Mm -hmm. for for inclusion for that sense of to develop a sense of community where we don't always have so much as much of it in western society for sure so i also um can just see so many so many avenues and so much value value in that uh caroline so yeah i really want to thank you again for joining me today and for all the work that you do, standing in all your many truths, whether it's organised, curate, design, writing, parenting, advocating for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. I think we've heard today how much I got out of reading it um, personally, and um, also as someone who is very earnest myself, I always want to help but don't always know how or what to say. and. You speaking today, um, and really bringing to light something that kind of comes through that you, that you you spend some time on in the book about walking alongside, mm-hmm. is super practical for those who are within that wider community of someone suffering in that way, and again a great call to action to not make things about ourselves, which is sometimes a natural, natural thing to do, but to really walk alongside victims to truly hear them and to just allow the space for their story. And going back a little bit to the big T, little T trauma, but I believe that in varying degrees, hiding something from the world and carrying on in our daily lives and workplaces as if nothing is or ever was wrong, is actually far, far more common than it should be. Mm. Um, and I mean, I've, I since reading your book, I reflect on it in day-to-day life or in the day-to-day news. We've recently had that tragic suicide of um, Ashwarya vankatachalam in Sydney mm. uh, not so long ago. And for me, you know, whilst there may be many trigger warnings, um, I really encourage anyone listening to this to read your book, Caroline, as I don't think anyone can possibly engage with it without taking something away uh, that could be personal to them or help them understand people around them. And um, so we're really grateful for people like you to have that have the courage to share so openly so that others can benefit, even if that comes at a personal cost. Caroline, I wish you all the good things and I hope we get to chat again when your next book is out.
1: <laughs> we'll, do a, we'll do a podcast every year as I do more and create more.
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbiased with me, Darshi Harindra. I derive so much energy and learn so much from speaking to such inspiring guests and amplifying diverse voices. If you feel the same way, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you consume your content from and follow me and the podcast so you can get all the latest episodes as they drop. I'd also love to hear from you. What works for you? What you'd like to hear more of? You can connect with me via my website, darshiharindra.com. Until next time, stay open